So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We are at the very end of Matthew chapter 5 in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We took a couple weeks off from this series over the holidays, and we're jumping back in now. Um, And we're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 43 through 48 this morning. Oh, one other thing I just noticed, somebody brought to my attention. We did a new bookmark for the Bible reading, and it is the exact same as the bookmark from last month. So uh, it's no good to you. It's a different color if you like the color better, but we'll give you one that actually makes any sense whatsoever next week. That is on me. I make the bookmark every week. So Tammy said I could blame her for that, but I cannot do it. It was my fault. Um, so don't worry about the bookmark unless you like the color blue over the color yellow. Okay. Matthew five forty-three through 48 says this. I'll put it up on the screen here too, I think. There we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So who doesn't love a passage that ends with that, right? Be perfect as God is perfect. Let's go work on that, and we'll see you next week, right? So a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, we were talking about the idea of retaliation, what we do to those who harm us and how we respond. And Jesus is very clear in his teaching. This is not, in fact, an eye for an eye kind of a thing if you're a follower of mine. We do not do that. And what we talked about at the end of that message, and it's very important because it connects what we're talking about this week, is this. Followers of Jesus, Christians, disciples of Jesus, do not get to really have a list of people in your life that you say, enemy, right? Everybody has that list, you draw a line right down the middle of the paper and you go, this is my enemy, this is my friend. These people, they know what they did, they're the ones that are going to be on that side of the list. And Jesus says to them, you're not really making enemies. So when someone wrongs you and hurts you and does something bad against you, that doesn't make them your enemy so you don't have to retaliate against them. And that's actually a very freeing thing and a freeing way to live. And so the result of that must mean that we don't have enemies, right? Because if I'm not making people into my enemies, if I'm not deciding to treat them like enemies, then that means that I don't have enemies. But Jesus says this about loving our enemies. Why? He immediately goes on to talk about loving our enemies because Jesus is a very realistic teacher in that he knows the reality of life. The reality of life is this. You may be doing a great job of not making those who wrong you into your enemies, but that doesn't mean that you won't have enemies because other people will make you into their enemy. Other people will choose to treat you in a way and act in such a way and live in a way that will still give you enemies in your life. So what do we do with the people who are our enemies? Jesus' response is love. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus has started every one of the passages we've been going through in the last several weeks with, you have heard it is said, because that's what they've heard. The Jewish people he's talking to, largely a group of Jewish people, have heard this teaching for years, right? This is what we teach. This is what it's said. And the teaching goes, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And then Jesus always comes back and says, but I tell you. Here's why he does that, because what they've been hearing isn't accurate. When he says, you heard that it's said, that means the scribe because people couldn't read at the time. And so a scribe had to read to you what was said. And so if the scribe said the wrong thing, you believed and knew the wrong thing. And so Jesus is saying, what you heard is not actually what was written. I'm gonna tell you what the heart of that law was and what was actually written. And the example I can give you for this is for this week is Leviticus 19 says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In Leviticus 19, in the Old Testament, we read this instruction to God's people, which is, don't bear vengeance, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against your own people, against your neighbor, but love them as yourself. The Israelites were to be a group of people that loved one another so well that others on the outside looked at them and said, then this God that you serve must be something that I should take seriously, that I should consider, okay? So what they did was they took this teaching, love your neighbor, and they tacked on over the years. I'm sure if God wants us to love the good people, then he obviously is okay with us hating the bad people and making them our enemies. So let's go ahead and do that. And generation after generation after generation taught this, and finally that's all people thought that it ever said. And so Jesus is saying to them, you have heard that thing, but instead I tell you to love your neighbor or to your enemy. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the word love, uh, if you've been around the church at all, you know there's different love words, okay? There's different words for love. There's up to like, there's four, really only three that are used in the New Testament. One of them is only used when they're saying people don't love this way or shouldn't do this or whatever, so that's kind of a confusing one. So we'll cut that one out. Uh, There's three left, and of those three, you can really characterize the kind of love or the uses of love in the Bible in the New Testament as being two primary uses, and I'll explain the third one in a second. There's philo, which is based on the relationship that you have with someone by your association. What that means is this. If you have a mom, then someone says, why do you love that person? because she's my mom. Why do you love them? Because they're my brother. Why do you love them? Because they're my neighbor. Why do you love them? Because they're my coworker. Why do you love them? Because they're my friend. That is the relationship that I'm in with them. Most of those relationships you'll notice you don't have a choice about, right? You just have them. Some of you are like, oh, I know, right? You just have them. That's the relationship you have. Agape love is love based on holding someone in a high regard. It is, I really love them, regardless of the relationship that we might have. My love for them and our relationship gives us a relationship, right? So I'll give you an example of this. You're sitting in Starbucks having coffee with somebody. A person comes in with a gun. They try to shoot him. You jump in front of the bullet. You take the bullet. And as you're dying in their arms, they say, why did you do this for me? And you say, because you're my brother. Well, if you're technically their brother, if you have the same parents, then okay, that's what it is. They're saying, hey, you're my brother. Of course I did it for you, right? I'm going to do it for you. If you're a sister, you say, maybe you're my sister. I did it for you, right? Because we're related. We're family. That's what we do. All of a sudden, I got like an Italian accent when I was doing that. I don't know why. (laughs) Italians, right? Family. Uh, So agape love, right? You're in Starbucks having coffee with this person. Somebody comes in. They try to shoot him. You jump in front of the bullet. You're dying from a gunshot wound. They say, why'd you do it for you? You say, because you're my brother. Because you're my sister. 
You're like, well, we don't have the same parents. What are you talking about, right? But you're like a brother. You're like a sister because you have agape love because you choose to love that person and hold them in high regard. Now, ideally, these things overlap. Ideally, if you have a relationship with a person that the world recognizes, you also have agape love for them, right? We just had the holidays. Some of you are very aware of how your family are the closest people to you, and some of you are very aware that they are not the closest people to you. You go see your family, and then you go, I miss my friends, right? Because they're not the same for me as my family, maybe. We have the philo love, and I treat them accordingly. I treat them well because of the relationship we have, but the agape love, which is really your acting a certain way towards someone because of how you feel about them. Maybe I have that with other people. I don't have that with that family. Now, the third kind of love that you read about in the New Testament is eros, which is romantic love, but it gets, it kind of covers both of these because the way the Bible uses eros, the New Testament, it's often talking about a relationship between a husband and wife as like a relationship, like they're in a covenant relationship together, and then there are other times when it talks about it like a passionate love. It doesn't have to do with the technicality of the relationship. It has to do with how they feel about it, okay? So that's why that can almost kind of fit into either one of these things, but when the New Testament talks about love, it's usually talking about the idea of you have a relationship with someone that's just there, and so you treat them well, or you love someone and care about them and hold them in high regard, regardless of the circumstances of life around you. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's talking about love. You know, love is patient, love is kind. He's using the word agape. Why? Because he's talking to the church about the way they should treat each other. He's saying, treat each other Act this way. Be benevolent towards one another in this way. And he's not saying that they should necessarily even feel a certain way, but they should act a certain way. You might go, oh, that's pretty terrible, right? Well, if you know how love works, you know that's actually very realistic. This is about action, not emotion. This is about action, not the original nature of your relationship. It's about choosing to treat someone a certain way, whether maybe the emotion's there or not. This is the love is a verb idea. Now, it's helpful that we know this is the kind of love Jesus is talking about because when he says love your enemies, he's not saying you have to have a warm and fuzzy feeling inside of your heart for them. He's saying you treat them with agape love. You choose to treat them well as you would someone that you have a high regard for. You will love them. Now, what he's not saying and what he does not mean is you will tolerate them, right? They're your enemy. You will tolerate them. He's not saying they're your enemy. You will ignore them. Just ignore them. We'll start with that. We'll start there, right? He's not saying, you know, bless their heart or whatever, right? He's not saying they're your enemy, so just don't, don't hit them every time you see them. But, you know, when you're not with them, or just be, be nice to them when you see them, and then when you're not with them, just tell everybody about how you feel about them, right? Maybe you got to vent, okay? If you're a Christian, you need prayer, right? Pray for me. Let me. Can I tell you again, just for an hour and a half, about this person I need you to pray for? Okay, you know? That's not love, believe it or not. That's not agape love that he's talking about. So he's not saying just don't, don't be mean to them to their face and then, or be nice to them to their face in this sort of like uh, ritualistic, empty sense and then turn around and everybody knows that you don't actually care about this person or have any kind of regard for them at all. Agape love is this. It's very simple. It is seeking the good of the other person. It is saying I will seek their good, okay? When I really love somebody, I want them to be good. I want things to be good for them. 
I want to seek their good. I want them to do well. I want their life to go well. And boy, if you really want someone to do good, if you really want to seek good in their life, if you really want their life to go well, then one of the first things that you're going to do is you're going to pray for that person. He says, pray. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. No, this is Leviticus, sorry. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you will love them, agape love, but what else will you do as an extension? You will pray for that person. Oh, you will get down on your knees and you will bring what they need before God. Why? Because you want good for them. And you do this with your friends, right? You do this with people that you love. You at least say you're gonna do it, right? For people that you love. You say, I'll pray for you, okay? Even if maybe you never get around to praying for all the people. I think Christians aren't really allowed to say uh, good luck for some reason. Like we, don't, like we don't believe in luck. Luck's not, you know, it's like God's in control of it. So I'll say, maybe instead, like I'll pray for you, right? I'll pray for you prayers, right? So we pray for the people who, who, we, who we like and who we care about because we know that's important for them. We reserve prayer for those who matter to us most. And it's not even actually because we don't have time to pray for other people. Because think about somebody that... Um, that matters to you. Let's say that they have a real need. Let's say you know somebody in your life who's really sick and they need prayer to get better, right? Let's say, you, I'm gonna pray for that person every day. So you start day one. God, just help make this person better. Heal them. Day two, God, help make this person better. Heal them. Day three, God, just heal them. Make this person better. Just heal them. Day four, God, just would you make them better? Would you help them and be healed, okay? And you keep going and you realize pretty quickly that if you're not actually like talking to that person, if you don't know what's going on in their life and what things are happening, then it's pretty hard to just pray for the same, for the same thing for the same person all the time. Now you take all the things that all the people you know need, right? And you realize like it can be kind of tough to pray for people, but it's not because you don't have enough time in the amount of time in the day you spend on your knees before God to pray. It's because you don't think to pray for them. It's because you don't remember to pray for them. And it's usually because it just isn't on your heart, right? When you're talking to God, you're like, last thing I want to do is talk about that person and that person. But there's the things at the forefront of our mind. And he's saying, put the needs of this person and the life of this person at the forefront of your mind when you're talking to God. Praying for someone is like asking God to be a part of their lives. It's like asking God to act in their life. It's saying, I want God's presence in this person's life. I want God's will to be done in their life. He says, you pray for this for your enemies. Now, I think it's fair to say that for many of us, if we have enemies, we pray for them, but it's not quite for this, right? It's like, oh, I, I, I want God to do something in their life, right? And I can think of a thing or two that I want him to do. Okay, and if you want to go one step up from there, you go, God, I want, I want this person to be better, but just, you know, you're going to need to really show them some things, you know, you're going to need to really bring things down, right? You're going to need to mess things up. You're going to need to show them the error of their ways, how they're hurting me or hurting other people, because God, I know that when you look at me, you see a good person. When you look at them, you see a bad person. And so God just helped them stop being so bad. God, please, God, help them stop being so bad for them because I love them, right? I think for some of us, we know what it is to like pray for another person who's our enemy and to ask God to be present in their life. Oh, I want his will done in their life. You can bet that. But not for good, not really, 
right? Not for the kind of blessing, the kind of provision, the kind of God's presence that brings us true joy. Not for God to really work in their life. That is a hard thing for many of us to pray for, for our enemies, for those who call us their enemies. And this is what he's telling us to pray. Now, there's two reasons why Jesus is telling us to pray for them. To not just love them, but to show that love even by how we pray for them. And the first is this, because Jesus teaches really clearly, even just in the Sermon on the Mount, prayer works. Prayer actually does things. Like it actually does things. It's not just something you do because it helps you find inner peace. It actually accomplishes things. He goes out of his way to say again and again how it works and and how it accomplishes things and that God is hearing you and he is listening. And then even regular petitions have an impact on the God of the universe. That there's even a sense that God's like, I I I wanna be present, I wanna do something, but I just want you to ask me to be a part of this. I want you to bring me into it and ask me to be a part of your life. And, and, and so what we do is we pray for our enemies first and foremost because Jesus says it actually matters that you pray for them. All the other stuff you're gonna do when you're trying to deal with this person, try praying for them. Not that they would just be repentant and realize what an awful person they are and how great you are, but that you would actually pray that, that, that good would happen and then trust that God can do things through that. That's the number one reason why Jesus tells us to pray, I think, is just because he knows that prayer works. I'm not saying that selfishly Jesus wants us to think about prayer as nothing but petitions, but I'm saying to pray that another person even be more mindful of God is I don't think the same as praying for a new house or a new car. That God would be present in their life is the same. The other reason he tells us to do it is because it will keep us from becoming hard-hearted towards this person. Jesus knows you cannot get down on your knees and you cannot ask God about someone, talk to God about someone else for their own good and allow your heart to continue to get callous towards them. You can't do it. You can't. If it was callous towards them, it will begin to soften. And if you do this from the beginning, then you probably won't see the kind of hardness of heart that we develop towards the people who call us their enemies when we don't think that we should be. And so then he gives his reason for it. He says this, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He says, because this is how God does it. If you want to be a son of God, If you want to be an image bearer of God, if you want to be someone who lives in a way that is a reflection of the way that God chooses to be and treat people, then recognize that God allows good and blessing to happen to both good and evil, bad and good people. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He sends the sun. He chooses not to separate these things out based on how anyone's acting on a given day or any group of people that they're a part of. If God can do it, if God chooses to do it, then you can do it too. Now, taken by itself, this is the most overwhelming thing that you could possibly say to someone. Why should I do it? Well, because God does it and you should be like God. Well, I can think of a few things that God does that I probably can't do, right? That's not the most empowering statement to make. But he's not saying because God's strong enough to do it, you can do it. He's saying this because he's pointing out that God chooses to handle things this way. That God says, this is the way that I want to interact with people, even the people who are my enemies. And so you do it too. 
He goes on and he says this, and this I believe is the core of this whole teaching of what Jesus is teaching on with our enemies. This is why he's talking about it this way. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do you not even the Gentiles do the same? What Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, if you are going to follow me and be my disciple, if you have any hope of being distinct, then this is what it looks like, even though it's counterintuitive and very, very difficult, which means the counterintuitive and very difficult things are the things that make the difference. Because you might say, Jesus, this is not reasonable. I can't do this. I'll do half. How about that? I'll focus on being good and loving and kind towards the people who are good and loving and kind towards me. That when people look at me and they look at my church and they look at my, my family, that they see somebody who says, I am going to love my spouse better than anybody. I'm going to love my kids better than anybody. I'm going to love my church better than anybody. I'm going to love my friends better than anybody. And it's going to be in a way that people look at me and they say, man, look at how much that person loves. They're great. They're different. They're distinct. And Jesus is saying, if you stop there, you haven't made it much further than these other people. A tax collector is a morally bankrupt person. It's just a bad guy. It's a person who, who, who does the wrong thing and doesn't seem to have problems with it, and so people don't have any respect for him, and they pretty much loathe them. The Gentiles, he's not saying they're bad people. When he talks about Gentiles, he's saying the unreligious people, the irreligious people, the people who do not, who, who the Jews associate with not believing in God, essentially being an atheist, being a secular person. So if you're gonna treat your friends well and treat your enemies bad, you may as well be an atheist. If you're going to treat your friends well, you're going to treat your enemies bad. Even the bad people do that. The ones in society that you think are a, are a drug to society and we don't need them and they're only hurting us and bringing us down. If you get halfway there, you get an F. If you get 50%, you get an F. Well, that's not fair. How is that fair? That you do half the work and you get an F. Well, because if the point is to know something and you only know half, that's not enough. It's not. You gotta know more than half. You gotta do more than half. When I was in seminary, the grading scale at our seminary was every six points instead of every 10. So if you got like a 94, it was a B, and you go down from there, and believe me, it matters if you go down from there. Because you're like, I got a D on this, and I thought I got a pretty good grade. Now, the reason they do this, the reason that this kind of a thing exists is that as much as we would like to believe that you can do half the work and that it will still count, that it won't count enough to make a difference in where you were at before. Here's why I think that this is the core of what Jesus is talking about, and I think there's a reason that he's even summing up this part of the Sermon on the Mount with this. I think that if we look at the world around us, that it is not hard to see that we live in a society in which uh, in which religion is not what it used to be. Religious thought, religious ideas are not what they used to be. Even just take America, for example. Uh, the idea of religion, the idea of spirituality, the idea of being a Christian is not as big of a part of the culture of the world in which we live, of the country in which we live, than it even used to be. 
There is a sense of decline. There's a sense that it was one way before where it was more dominant in our society and now it isn't. And if you measure nothing but the numbers of people who actually attend church and believe in God, they have far declined what they were generations ago. We see that. We get that. We see the changes in our culture. We see the changes in all different areas of our country, right? And we go, well, well, clearly something is going wrong. Clearly something bad is happening, and we have to find a way to stop it. Now, um, when, I was in, when I was in college and seminary, uh, there was the, sort of the beginnings of a movement called the New Atheism. And the New Atheism was essentially this. It was atheists becoming evangelists, okay? Uh, on a scale that we hadn't really experienced before. Okay, because before this, it was, like, it was like if you were an atheist, chances are you were like, whatever, I don't care what you are, I don't believe anything, so I don't care if you, what you believe, right? And you had all these religious people going, I care about what you believe, you, you should believe what I believe because I want you to go to heaven or I think it matters for everybody, not just me. And so you go, what would happen if all these atheists decided, I think it's bad that other people believe in God. I think it's bad that other people go to church. I think it's bad for society and bad for people and bad for education and bad for culture and, and everything in our world. The salvation, the, the existence of our world. I believe our world will literally fall apart if people believe in God and in religion. So I will evangelize the good news that there is no God and that scientific progress has answered all the questions that we need to answer. And this is the idea, the idea we would say of secularism. And this then is the enemy, okay? This is, this is the bad guy over here. And, uh, and I mean, and we'll say Satan. We'll be like, Satan is behind this whole thing, right? And then you've got, you've got us, right? You've got the Christians, you've got the Orthodox, the people who believe the right things and know the right things and are fighting for the right things. And you go, we've got to fight this war, but if someone says, who's causing this? Why is this happening? Why is our country going this way? Why are things going this way? We say, it's because of them, right? It's because of those people. It's because they're going around now. They're writing books and they're speaking and they're, they're, in, in, they're, they're in every college. They're in every aspect of life, it seems. And they're saying these things are true and, and, they're, and they're convincing people these things are true. So we've got to find a way to battle that. I was reading a book this week rereading a book that I've read a few times that is an incredible book. It's called Bad Religion. It's not a book about bad religion, don't worry. It's called Bad Religion, and the subtitle is How Our, how our, nation, or, 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 how our nation Became a Nation of Heretics, basically. And the premise of this book, now, now this whole secularism thing I'm talking about, this has been around for a long time, okay? I mean, even, okay, so Darwin, Origin of the Species, he had this friend, Aldous Huxley, they call him the bulldog, Darwin's bulldog, okay? This guy went around telling people, like, my buddy Darwin, he only cares about the science, but I care about everything else, and none of you should believe in God, because he's changing everything, and you're all fools for believing it. And he said, a long time ago, he said, man, in a couple of years, Christianity, faith, God, all that stuff's gonna be dead, Carl Sagan in the 80s said, a couple years, Christianity, God, faith, all that stuff's gonna be dead, right? Uh, back when I was this new atheism thing I'm talking about that starts, there's, there's, there's this guy named Daniel Dennett. He's a philosopher at USC. He wrote a book called Breaking the Spell where he basically said, everything we've learned about science has just, set, has just taught us that religion is a completely made up thing that biologically happens in our minds and groups of people when they evolve together. I'm breaking the spell of religion. You don't need it. And in a couple of years, it's all going to be gone. It's all going to be irrelevant. It's all going to be that no one's going to care about it. Richard Dawkins, all these people write books, and they continually say it's going to be dead. It's going to be gone. But you'll never guess what keeps happening, right? It's not dead, it seems. 
What they've said is they've said there will only be a couple of people who believe in this still and they will literally be the dumbest people and everyone will know they're the dumbest people and then that'll be the end of it. And that hasn't happened. Since, since the beginning of people saying like this is where it's gonna go, the more we learn about our world, the more knowledge we gain, the more we're gonna see that God doesn't matter and no one will care about him. But that's not true. People do still seem to care about God. They do still seem interested. They seem spiritual. They seem to care about these things. If you were to ask most Americans today, they would say, I believe in God. And so this, this, this uh, prediction, this prophecy that have been made by people continually shows that it's not true. And we go, why is that though? If they're fighting so hard over here and apparently we're losing ground over here, then why is that? And this author writing this book makes an argument for why that is. And I agree with it. I think it's true. And I think it has to do with what Jesus is saying. He says this. He says, a growing number are inventing their own versions of what Christianity means. Abandoning the nuances of traditional theology in favor of religions that stroke their egos and indulge or even celebrate their worst impulses. These faiths speak from many pulpits. Conservative and liberal, political and pop cultural, traditionally religious and fashionably spiritual and many of their preachers call themselves Christian or claim a Christian warrant. But they are increasingly offering distortions of traditional Christianity, not the real thing. His argument is this, the reason that our country is in the state it is in, the reason it feels like we are losing ground is not because entirely of secularists, it is because of the mass group of people right here in the middle who say, I, yeah, I believe in God, I mean, there's gotta be a purpose and a reason behind all this. I think Jesus certainly seemed to know some things, and I really like this stuff that he talks about. I'm, just, I'm not gonna worry about the rest. That right there is the majority of people who live in America today. It is. And that group, that mindset, and the enabling of that is what is causing what we experience today. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is he's saying, if you choose to do this and not this, you are not different and you are not distinct, and therefore, it will not make a difference. And as, and as traditionally times have changed in culture, church typically has to choose, am I going to essentially accommodate to what is happening, or am I going to remain orthodox and traditional? And what he's saying in this book that I've been reading, is, and, and I've read several times, and I've agreed with, because a number of pastors have said it throughout this time, is they said, while you might accommodate and change, it will seem like it's working at one point in the beginning. People will get excited and they will say, finally, you get me and you get us and you get where things are going. But in the end, it will lead to something that is not any different from what's outside of it and people will go, I actually don't really need this. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying 50% is enough. When it comes to religion, when it comes to faith, when it comes to being a follower of me, if you do half and don't do the rest, you're not that distinct and that matters a lot. You say traditional Christianity? Orthodoxy? Seriously, that's the answer? That's what we need? That is not something people can get very excited about. That is not a very, those are not very popular things, very popular words. Why? Because they seem very repressive, they seem very oppressive, they seem very controlling, and they seem way too rigid. There is nothing that an American dislikes more than being told what to do. 
then being told what to believe, and then being told that they can't decide every individual thing to believe for themselves. It's true. And so while Jesus could have a group of disciples and followers who are known for their incredible love for their friends, he says, if you can't treat your enemies this way, which believe me, none of these other people are trying to do, then how will you be distinct? And how will that show that you actually believe? Because here's why 50% doesn't work. Because we pick the 50% that's already what we agree with. That's typically what we do. We go, these teachings of Jesus, they resonate with me. They resonate with my life. They resonate with where I'm coming from. And I really get them and I like them. I'm not sure about these ones. They're really hard. I'm going to come back to them and I'm going to work on them later. I promise. And that's why the 50% doesn't result in a group of people who have been changed in a way that says to the world, like there's something different about this. Because we tend to pick that to start with. This is, this teaching of Jesus is perfectly orthodox. It is orthodoxy, right teaching. It is orthopraxy, which is right living. It's really about living. It's very practical, right? It's, it's not about theology and learning. It's about how you treat people that, you, that, that don't like you. That's, that's so practical. But it is rooted in something that is so theological, which is this. This is how God sees all of you. This is how God chooses to deal with all of his children. This is how God handles his people and his creation. And so it is orthodox. It is right. And guess what? It's also traditional because it's been around since Jesus obviously taught it. Jesus is teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount. His big major first teaching or collection of teachings into a sermon. It's been around for this long. And yet how many of us are doing it? How many have done this? And how many have said, I'll maybe get to that later. I don't know, probably mistranslated or something. I don't think he means what we think he means. There's an author, G.K. Chesterton. He's a philosopher uh, and a thinker, British thinker. There was, and he says, when people turn away from God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything. We don't live in a society full of people who believe in nothing. We don't. We believe in a society of people who believe in almost everything. Whatever resonates, whatever connects, whatever clicks. And what we're called to do is not be people who live this way. Now, one of the reasons why we feel like this is overwhelming is because we feel like we can't do it. It's exhausting. We go, how can I possibly do this and live this way? And it's because we go, I barely have enough love to give the people that are nice to me that I like. Right? I barely have enough to give to those. But the economy of love, this is like a weird phrase, the economy of love, but the economy of love is this. It is that we actually do have enough and that it actually doesn't cost us more to love people. When you choose to love a person, that is not harder, believe it or not, that is not more taxing for you, believe it or not, than to choose to not love that enemy. I was at my friend's house over Christmas, the weekend between Christmas and New Year's. We, we were at some friend's houses, and um, we were in the backyard at one point, me and my buddy, and we were hitting oranges with baseball bats, as you do in the week between Christmas. Yes, right, head on. Now, how many of you have ever hit an orange with a baseball bat? 
Okay, right. Okay. If you haven't, you have not lived. You have not lived. Because there is nothing as satisfying, I think, as hitting an orange with a baseball bat as hard as you can. Now, if I told you that my friend had an orange tree, then we would not be the most wasteful people in the world for doing that, right? Which he does. He has a huge orange tree in his backyard. Um, if he had to go to the store and get oranges, then uh, it would be like, what were you doing? Uh, there are people in this world who don't have enough food and you're buying oranges and hitting them with baseball bats? Uh, what? Right? If you're a parent and you've kind your kid outside hitting oranges with baseball bats, you might not get upset if you had an orange tree, right? I was talking to the first service about this and there was like not a lot of connection happening. And then we started talking about zucchinis and people start going wild, right? If you have zucchinis, have you ever been at this church in zucchini season? You know it's zucchini season because the welcome center is full of zucchinis that people don't want, right? They're like, but it's like that with oranges, right? Like people show up, they're like, hey, I just wanted to come over and I thought you'd want this huge bag of oranges. I just, I don't know, it seemed like something you'd want. Don't want them to go bad, don't want them to go bad. If anybody wants to come, it would hate for them to go bad. It'd be terrible if they went bad, right? Oranges, oranges, oranges coming out of your ears, right? The zucchini thing doesn't totally work because you can't hit zucchinis with baseball bats. It's not that satisfying. Okay, yeah, you can, I guess. Also, by the way, I've noticed that the ones here are the big ones that people don't notice. You know, the ones that hide under the big leaves and then you get to it and you're like, I don't want to eat this. I'll just take it to church, right? And that's what people do here. So, you know, thanks for that. Leaving us a bunch of giant zucchinis rotting in our... Yeah, all right, we're going to do it. Josh, that's a freebie. There you go. We'll do a scissor lift zucchini challenge. Um, I, mean, I mean, my friend and I were youth pastors at one point, so that's probably why we were hitting oranges with baseball bats. But all that to say, I'm talking about. When we talk about love and we talk about the fact that Jesus is constantly telling us to love people, and it gets kind of exhausting, doesn't it? He's like, love, 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 right? What do you think? I have an endless supply of love, Jesus? What do you think? I got love growing on trees in my house? I got to go to the store and buy love. No, we don't. First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus, you really are someone who has access to, like, all the love that you're ever going to need. You get it from him. You got plenty of it. And I think we all know this, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because then it starts to just become about the practicality of being nice to enemies because there are plenty of people, of people in the world saying like, oh, don't focus on the negative and don't let negative people get you down. It'll slow you down in life. It'll get you bummed out in life. And this isn't about being successful in life. But it is true that you expend so much more energy treating enemies like enemies than you do loving them. Even praying for enemies as enemies is exhausting and discouraging. And praying for enemies with love is the exact opposite of that. And so while it feels overwhelming, we have enough love. Now, now if he was saying relationships or something like that, then it would be different because that's not how relationships work. You can't have relationships with everyone that, that are meaningful, right? You can't. Relationships take time, they take money, some take a lot of money, right? They cost things of you that we have in limited supply, and that's why we can only have so many really quality relationships in our life. But we can treat anybody with love. That doesn't cost us any more. It really doesn't. And we can start with the easiest thing ever, which is by praying for people. We can, and that's what he says to do. He says, pray for them. And see God's will and is good for their life. Jesus goes on and says what we all love hearing. 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus talks about being perfect like this, he's talking about being complete, about the kind of completeness, the comprehensiveness that comes from living in light of the gospel and the kingdom of God. And this is what I mean by not 50%. While many of us would love to be able to focus on certain parts of following Jesus and not others, what this passage is about is it's about him saying, listen, guys, If you're gonna pick and choose this stuff and you're only gonna care about certain things and not other things and you're gonna talk all day about how being a follower of Jesus means all these things but you're gonna ignore all these things that it means, that it calls you to, then you'll never be able to have a comprehensive and complete faith. It will be partial. And partial faith usually is very draining and legalistic. This isn't about just being a nice person and being nice to all the people. It's not about perfectly doing it. It's about fully seeking to do it. Bible speaks very harshly against the idea of lukewarmness. The idea that you do something but just do it a little bit. Right? Bible tells us that God wants to spew lukewarm people from his mouth, that he will do that, lukewarmness. Because we're prone to think, oh, I'm sure he'd rather me be somewhere in the middle. And I have found that as, even as a pastor, that I can relate more almost to the extreme atheist evangelist over here than I can the mass of people in the middle sometimes. Just kind of doing whatever feels right. And, and honestly, doing whatever makes life work better, right? I mean, how does atheism make my family better? But, but maybe faith will. So I'll give that a try for a while. And I'll try all the components and all the things of it that make my family good. And I'm going to ignore the stuff that seems too hard. It might, might require our family to sacrifice, right? Who wants a lukewarm marriage? Who wants a lukewarm parent? Who wants lukewarm friends? Who wants a lukewarm employee? Who wants people who have decided that they're going to go halfway and then stop because that's better than nothing at all? God doesn't want that. He says he doesn't want it. And so Jesus says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. I think the best part about this is that it brings us to a point that his teaching through the Sermon on the Mount will continually bring us to again and again, and it's this. It's that without the gospel, there's no way that we can do this or live this way. Why do we live this way? Why do we do this? Because we were at one time enemies of God. And when we were still sinners, when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. He lived for us and died for us. And it wasn't because we earned it or did something amazing. It was because that was the only way that we would be able to be in a relationship with him, that we would be able to have life beyond the death that sin has caused. And so why do we do it? Why can we do it? Why is it not overwhelming and exhausting and impossible? Because hopefully if you are a follower of Jesus then you are grateful for what he's done. And when you get on your knees and you pray for somebody who's your enemy, you go, I know what it feels like to blow it and to be the enemy. I know what that feels like, and I've done that. It's not out of guilt or obligation to what God's done for us that makes us feel like we have to do this. But without the gospel, this kind of thing, even this, loving your enemies, 
can become legalistic and will just be religion. And without the gospel, we're only gonna get like 50% of the way there in this life, and we are gonna get 0% of the way there in the next life. We are gonna get halfway through anything that Jesus ever tells us that we should do. And we're just gonna get to the point of religious legalism. That's all we're gonna get to without the gospel. And in the next life, we're gonna get nowhere without the gospel. And so it's a reminder to us, and joy, joyful reminder for us of the fact that what Jesus is calling to us to depends on being forgiven in the gospel and getting that. That's why we talk about it all the time. We have to get it. We have to understand it. And that it also, it also comes from a place of recognizing that this does bring us joy. That living as Jesus talks to us to live, uh, talks about living in this way, it brings us joy. That choosing to love your enemy to treat them with agape love, to treat them as if you desire for good to be done in their life, that that actually can produce joy in our own lives. And while we don't do it just to get joy, because in, in truth, if we want the immediate satisfaction that comes with enemies, it's not treating them as friends. Sometimes it's what we like about having an enemy or two, is that we get to be upset with someone, we get to have somebody to, to be opposed to. So we're gonna spend some time in worship. And as we worship, I, I want us to be able to pray and to reflect on, if nothing else, like what Jesus has done for us, who he is, and that we were at one time enemies of his. And if you are somebody here who is not a Christian, if you're like, I, I maybe I resonate with some of this, I agree with a lot of it, I believe some of it, but I have not trusted in Christ. I do not believe in this enough to say that I, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I, and I am dying, I, I have death. That the trajectory I'm on is death. Maybe not because your whole life's falling apart and you're a disaster, but just because that is what sin brings. That you recognize that and you recognize that Christ is life, but he has to forgive me. And the only way that he can forgive me is if I come to him and I say, I repent. I repent of the sin and I need you and I'm gonna follow you. That if you're somebody here who has not done that before, that has not made that choice or made that decision or prayed that prayer, that you would, as we sing and as we pray, that you would do that now, that you would pray that now, that you would do it in your seat if you have to, that you would come up here and you would kneel down and do it if you have to. And if the rest of you need to just pray and come and kneel and repent or do so in your seat of the way that you have harbored bitterness or resentment or frustration towards your enemies, well, let's be honest, the whole front would be full, so not everybody come up. But let this be a time that we, that we worship God for what he's done and who he is. Not because not we're gonna leave and go do this next hard thing, but because like we live in, in the freedom that comes from knowing that we were once enemies, but he chose to let the sun shine on all of us and the rain come down on all of us and give us life. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, you are indeed so good that it is overwhelming and it is inconceivable how good you are, Lord. We pray that, and I thank you that Jesus is so practical, that as he was looking out at his disciples and as his followers, that I know that he looked at them and he thought, I don't want them to think that by doing some of this that they'll be different because they won't. That the temptation will be there for them to take all the things I've taught them up to this point, go live those things out, and that, and that their life will probably be pretty good because of that. But instead that Jesus knew 
that they must seek to do this comprehensively. If they pick and choose, it will not work. They will not truly be disciples. And I thank you for the, for the practicality that, that drives that because it means that it, it makes a difference in our lives. And we just repent and we, we ask your forgiveness for the fact that for many of us, um, that is how we want to follow you. That for many of us, there are people in our lives who have made us their enemy and have made themselves our enemy. And that while it makes complete and total sense to treat them as such, we pray that you would help us to repent of treating them that way and to begin to get on our knees and pray for them and to seek your good for their life, your blessing for their life, and ultimately to seek to be friends with them, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. First Corinthians says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It's interesting that this is the same word, like I said, agape, used here in the passage we just looked at where Jesus talks about how we are to treat our enemies. And for me personally, the hardest part of this love passage is right at the end here where it says that it does not, that it bears all things, that it believes all things, that it hopes all things, and that it even endures all things. That has one meaning when you think of your friends. It takes on a whole other meaning when you think of your enemies. And so our, our hope is to be a group of people, to individually just be people who seek to live this out, not just for those who love us in return, but for our enemies. Amen? And that if we trust, if we do so, it will bring us joy. That it is joyful to live this way. as as joyful as throwing an orange up in the air (laughs) and just hitting it with a baseball bat. And if you haven't done that ever, I just, if nothing else this week, go and give that a shot. God bless you guys. Have a great week.